welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus, episode 101. We are into our second century of geeky news, views and reviews. And so I'm here again with another hour of all of that good stuff. And we're going to start with this week's wonderful woman of science, because so often this segment gets pushed to the end of the show. And that's something that kind of happened in the life of the person I want to talk about today. In so many ways, what happened in this woman's career was kind of reflective of the reason I made a point of doing these segments in the first place. I've been asked, look, why do you make a focus on wonderful women of science? Yes, women have it tough in science, but, you know, there are lots of men who struggle, who face prejudice as well. And that's true. That is unquestionably true. But, well, just listen to this story and you'll see, I think, the point I'm trying to make. But for now, cast your mind back to Grafton in New South Wales, in Australia. It's the 28th of May, 1912. And a child is being born to Cyril Payne Scott and his wife, Amy Payne Scott. This child is a daughter, Ruby. Ruby Payne Scott moved as a child to Sydney, the principal city, not the capital, people often make that mistake, but the principal city of Australia to live with an aunt. Uh, and while she was there, she attended the Penrith Public Primary School between 1921 and 1924, and then the Cleveland Street Girls High School between 1925 and 1926, before completing her secondary education at the Sydney Girls High School. When she left there, her school leaving certificate included honours in mathematics and in botany. She then received two scholarships to undertake tertiary education at the University of Sydney, where as an undergraduate, she studied physics, chemistry, mathematics and botany. And she took her BSc, her Bachelor of Science, in 1933, only the third woman to graduate in physics from the University of Sydney. Uh, and she then followed that up with a Master of Sciences, an MSc in physics in 1936, and a DIPED, the Diploma of Education, in 1938, because she was a woman. And of course, the only thing, even in a country as free freewheeling as Australia, the only thing a woman could do in science, as far as most people could conceive, in the 1930s, was teach. And yeah, I speak as a PGCE here, which is the modern equivalent of the British DIPED. I, um, I don't denigrate that at all. Being a teacher is an amazing thing. Anyway, in 1936, Ruby Payne Scott was conducting research with William H. Love at the Cancer Research Laboratory at the University of Sydney. They figured out that the magnetism of the Earth had very little or indeed no effect on the vital processes of beings living on the Earth. And they did this by cultivating chicken embryos with no observable differences, despite being in magnetic fields up to 5,000 times as powerful as that of the Earth. Now, that might seem like a weird experiment to do today, but in the 1930s, that was at the cutting edge of this kind of biology and physics. Decades earlier, the belief that the Earth's magnetic field produced extensive effects on human beings was widely held to the point that many people would only sleep with their head pointing to the north uh, and their body parallel to the magnetic meridian. I know it sounds ridiculous, but people believe that stuff. Uh, with William H. Love, Payne Scott helped demonstrate that that was utter nonsense. After this cancer research, she worked for a year and a term as a secondary school teacher at St. Peter's Woodlands Grammar School between 1938 and 1939. After this, she joined AWA, which was a prominent electronics manufacturer and an op uh, particularly working in two-way radio communication systems in Australia, which at the time was unbelievably important in Australia. It was much, much easier to use radio than to lay telephone cables across that vast continent. So, you know, there was a reason that the Australians were at the cutting edge of this. Now, she was, and this is telling, 
originally hired there as a librarian. Uh, but her work quickly expanded to leading the measurements laboratory and performing electrical engineering research. She left AWA in August 1941, having grown, and this is this is a quote from Wikipedia, so having grown displeased with this research environment, um, which is such a sweet way of saying she was utterly, utterly fed up to the back teeth with the rampant misogyny. Obviously, now it's 1941, and though the war in Europe would have seemed quite a long way away to those living in Australia, Australia was part of the British Empire at the time, and Australia was beginning to get involved in the Second World War. And on the 18th of August 1941, Ruby joined the Radiophysics Laboratory uh, of the, and again, just the title of this, you can tell that NASA had nothing to do with it. The Australian Government's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, uh, known by the equally snappy uh, initialism, the CSIRO. I know, NASA, nothing to do with that. They would have made it spell a word. So during World War II, she was working in top secret radar work. Uh, she became Australia's expert on the detection of aircraft using plan position indicator displays. Um which are basically, you know, when you see air traffic control, there's the circular screen with a little line that goes round and occasionally it goes ping and there's a dot. That. She was working on that. Uh, she also made important contributions to prototype radar systems, including in the 25 centimetre microwave band, uh, which is incredibly important in military radars, uh, and made some significant improvements on what was available. Now, the focus of the radio physics lab began to switch from developing new radar systems to repurposing civilian radar systems, existing technology, for military purposes. And she was a major contributor in this. Uh, her expertise as a physicist and an electrical engineer made her stand out amongst her colleagues, most of whom lacked a formal physics education. And so, along with... Um, somebody called Joe Pawsey and Lindsay McCready. Um, in October 1945, she wrote to the journal Nature to describe the connection between sunspots and increased radio emissions from the sun. Now, that letter was published in February 1946. Before that, in December 1945, she also put together a summary of, and again, in quotes, all knowledge available and the measurements taken at the radio physics lab and suggested future research directions that were essentially designed to set the future direction of travel for that group. Then in February 1946, uh, Ruby, along with McCready and Pawsey, uh, made use of the fact that their observation sites were on a sea cliff to perform the first interferometry, uh, sorry, the first radio interferometry. This is such a hard word to say, interferometry for astronomical observations. And those observations confirmed that intense bursts of radio energy coming from the direction of the sun were coming from sunspots. Their paper was also the very first suggestion of Fourier synthesis in radio astronomy, an idea that was foreshadowing the future of aperture synthesis, which I'm not about to explain because I do not fully understand it myself, but it's a really important thing in radio astronomy. She was there at the start. It wasn't just her, but she was there at the very start of people realising that this was a thing that could be done. So the war ended, and between 1946 and 1951, Ruby was focusing on those burst emissions from the sun, those blasts of radio energy, and she's credited with discovering type 1 and type 3 radio bursts and also credited with gathering data that helped characterise types 2 and 4. Now, again, what that actually means, what types 1, 2, 3 and 4 radio bursts from the sun actually are and why they're significant, that's a feature for another time. Just trust me, it matters. Now, as part of all of that work, together with a guy called Alec Little, she designed and built a new swept-load interferometer that could draw a map of solar... So, solar? solar radio emissions uh, and polarisation once every second and would automatically record to a movie camera 
moving pictures, actual visual moving images, whenever emissions reach a certain intensity. That is unbelievably important, not just in understanding what was going on, but in showing other people what the research means. And as anyone who's ever worked in science communication can tell you, that is important. Being able to actually explain why what you've discovered matters is probably as important as the discovery itself in many, many ways. And you might be thinking, well, so far, so good. How is this woman facing any kind of challenges at all? The Second World War seems to have worked out quite well for her, as it did for a lot of women, in, in that they were able to pursue careers that they were capable of excelling in, but which would have been close to them before the war. And yes, there's an element of that. Um, but it's everything else that was going on around it that makes her an example of the issues that women have to face. And this is the this is where we end our linear timeline. It's 1951. And her scientific career ends with a screeching handbrake turn because she decides with her husband, and we'll come to that, to start a family. Now, at the time, there was no maternity leave possible. You either turned up to work or you didn't. Uh, and if you were stopping at home to look after a child, then there was no job for you. However, it was rather more important than that. Um, Ruby Payne Scott married William Bill Holman Hall in 1944, but they married in secret. So they've been married uh, by 1951 when they decided to start a family. They've been married for seven years. Nobody knew. They didn't tell anybody. And the reason they didn't tell anybody was because the Commonwealth government had legislated for a marriage bar, which explicitly stated that no married woman could hold a permanent position within public service. So once she was married, she could have continued to work at the CSIRO, but only as a contractor. She couldn't have had an actual job there. And she thought that was absolute cobblers. And so she was married in secret and she kept with her husband that secret. Um, right the way through until 1949, when regulations for the, of the new CSIRO uh, sort of post-war raised the issue. Now, she had lived with her husband from 1944 to 1949, and everyone thought they were living in sin. Now, if you think of the stigma that was attached to that at that time, and yet that was preferable to her, the, the reputation, the reputational damage that went with that was preferable to her than admitting she was married and giving up her job. Just think about that for a second. Um, however, Come 1950, uh, she lost her permanent position at the CSARO because she was married. Um, her salary was maintained at a level comparable to that of her male colleagues, unlike other women who were put down to the, and I'm quoting again now, female rate. She had to fight for that. And finally, in 1951, just a few months before her son Peter was born, she resigned. Because at that point, she recognised it was impossible. And it was at that point when she left the CSIRO that Ruby Payne Scott began to use her husband Bill's last name and became formally known as Ruby Hall. They had two children, Peter Gavin Hall, a mathematician who worked on theoretical statistics and probability theory and were he female, might well qualify uh, for this segment. Uh, and Fiona Margaret Hall, who was an artist whose career is described by um, Julie Ewington in her 2005 book, Fiona Hall. So, you know, important enough to get a book written about her. Um, so after she left all of that, she went back into teaching a little bit. Uh, she was a great parent. Um, and finally, she left us. Uh, she died in Mortdale in New South Wales in 1981, three days short of her 69th birthday, which wasn't that young then, but it seems horribly, horribly, horribly young now. Towards the end of her life, Payne Scott suffered from Alzheimer's, and in 2018, the New York Times wrote a belated obituary for her, rather belated, I think it's fair to say, detailing how her work helped lay the foundation for a new field of science called, um, oh, let me check my notes, radio astronomy, 
one of the most important sciences currently in physics, and she laid the groundwork for that. This was recognised uh, in 2008 when CSIRO, which has improved, shall we say that it's improved, uh, acknowledged her contribution to science, establishing the Payne Scott Award, which is intended for researchers returning from family-related career breaks. So, yeah, I think that is actually an acknowledgement that they done messed up. Uh, Dane Bank School, where she taught after her radio astronomy career, hosts an annual Ruby Payne Scott lecture, which is, and again quoting, presented by outstanding women scientists in a variety of fields. And in 2017, the University of Sydney inaugurated the Payne Scott Professor Professorial Distinctions to honour distinguished professors for their contributions to the university across all areas of leadership, teaching and research. So, recognised perhaps not properly in life, but certainly in death, people understand the contribution that Ruby Payne Scott made. And please do talk about Ruby Payne Scott, perhaps when you're talking about radio astronomy, perhaps when you're talking about the development of wartime radio, ra radar, or perhaps when you're lamenting the absolutely shocking state of sexism and misogyny in modern science. Here endeth the wonderful woman of science. I refuse to call that the boring preachy part. There is nothing boring about Ruby Payne Scott. And so let us continue on to the news. What is going on in the world of geek this week? Well, quite a lot. And we may actually be leading back over stuff that's happened in previous weeks as well, because we've been a bit lax on the news lately. And, you know, stuff has been happening. I think the first thing, we need to go back and take a wee look at is what's going on with the strike. Uh, the Writers Guild of America continues to be on strike. It is continuing to have an impact on things that are forthcoming in the future. Can anything be forthcoming from not the future? Probably not. You know what I mean. Um, it does not look as though uh, there is a resolution in sight. I hate to say this, I have heard people who have reason to know what they're talking about thinking that this could go on well into the Christmas period. This is bad. This is bad because people are not getting paid. It's bad because things are not getting written. And that's bad because it means things will not get made. And it's bad also because it's having an effect on stuff that's out there already. Um, more stuff is disappearing from Disney+. Plus. Uh, it looks as though some stuff might be disappearing from Netflix in fairly short order as well, simply because the figuring out how to pay people residuals is too complicated for them. And they were thinking they were going to get away with not paying for it. And they shouldn't get away with not paying for it, but they will get away with not paying for it if they simply don't show it. And that is, to my way of thinking, a serious bit of cutting off your nose to spite your face, isn't it? Tis, surely. Because they aren't making money off it either. But they'd rather not make money than give the writers a cut. If that doesn't tell you who we're dealing with, I don't know what does. So up the workers, I think is what I'm saying. Uh, in complete support of the WGA. Absolute complete support. May they stand strong. Then, and this is much more importantly, having stood strong, win, get a deal sorted and get back to work so that I can have my Marvel movies and season two of Sandman. And actually, while we are on news about causes, it is worth pointing out that if you are listening to this on the day that it drops, it is June the 1st, 2023, which means it's the first day of Pride Month. Happy Pride to all who celebrate. Now, how does that factor into the geek sphere? Well, it is very much the case that there is... I don't think it's right to say there is a disproportionate number of people who would identify as LGBTQIA plus within the geek sphere. I think there probably is a disproportionate number of people in the geek community who are out and identifying as LGBTQIA plus because the geek community is generally speaking within certain parameters and we all know what the exceptions are. Generally speaking, pretty laid back and tolerant and easygoing and happy to let love be love and let people live their lives without interference kind of thing. 
there are a lot of out trans people in the gay sphere, for instance. Uh, there have always been a lot of gay people who have been visible in geek society. I like that. I like that because it demonstrates that we can be a tolerant bunch. We can be an accepting and approachable and safe bunch who welcome people based on their merit and the content of their character rather than their romantic sexual preferences or whether their gender identity matches the gender they were assigned at birth. And I like that about us. So, yes, we can get incredibly, incredibly tribal about Star Trek versus Star Wars and all of that nonsense. But mostly, mostly, not always, but mostly recognising that such nonsense is precisely that. And when it actually affects people's real lives, I like to think that the geek community is a welcoming one. And we see it, I think. I think we see it in the things that represent geek culture. Uh, Just looking back over Star Trek, for example, always been progressive. The pilot episode of Star Trek, The Cage, which did not feature Captain Kirk, did include a female first officer, number one, played by uh, Majel Roddenberry. Because Jean Roddenberry thought that women had every much right to be at the forefront of space and technology, as men did. At a time when the Mercury 13 were being told, nah, you're girls, you can't do space stuff. And when the the main series began, at the height of Cold War paranoia about the Soviets, and within you know fairly recent memory of the Second World War, and the war in the Pacific against Japan, and the internment of Japanese-American citizens in the United States, Roddenberry put Chekhov, a Russian, and Sulu, a Japanese man, on the bridge of the Enterprise. Now, you will know, I am sure, if you hang around any kind of popular culture anywhere, that uh, the brilliant George Takei, who portrayed Sulu, all the way through to the end of the original series run, right up to the end of the movies. George Takei is a gay man. He's a very gay man. That, in the 60s, was a step too far. Gene Roddenberry was perfectly aware that Takei was a gay man. He couldn't include that into the mythos of Star Trek. At the time, the 1960s were not ready for that en masse. But... When Star Trek The Next Generation debuted at the end of the 80s, so, you know, 20 years or so after Star Trek, the original series, had ended, there's nothing terribly overt about it. But if you look at what's going on on board the Enterprise-D, yes, in the first season, there are women wearing those miniskirt Starfleet uniforms. There are also men wearing those miniskirt Starfleet uniforms. Because Gene Roddenberry understood that by the 25th century, by Star Trek's era, humanity would have figured that stuff out and it wouldn't have mattered. Years later, in the 90s, primetime American TV, you have Talia Winters and Commander Susan Ivanova on Babylon 5. The only reason their fairly obvious love for each other was so difficult, was the fact that Susan Ivanova was incredibly emotionally repressed and that Talia Winters was... okay. she was a brain-altered spy. But nevertheless, the the honesty and the purity and the, the, the realness of the relationship between Talia and Susan in that show was profound. Around about the same time, I was beginning to read Strangers in Paradise, which introduced me to the first same-sex relationship in comics that I had ever come across that was treated with any kind of sensible realism. Uh, The the incredible relationship between Kachu and Francine. And if you have not read Strangers in Paradise, oh, you need to correct that. You really, really, really do. 
uh, I, I, it's impossible for me to, at this point, tell you what Strangers in Paradise is about. It's about relationships and friendships and crime and more crime and organised crime and spying and relationships and honesty and realism and who family actually is and ah so much just, just look just just trust me read strangers in paradise they are finally finally it's on the order form this month they are finally reprinting the early collections and not only does it feature some of the best black and white line art you will ever see in your life two of the most extraordinary characters in fiction Cachou and francine uh, they deserve your attention. Just trust me on this. And on, and on, and on. So whilst I'm not saying that geek culture has got everything completely right, I am not saying that there is not homophobia and transphobia in popular culture. There clearly is. But I honestly don't think it's as bad in our corner of the world as it is elsewhere. And I think that resistance to the backlash against the acceptance of people who would identify as LGBTQIA+. I think the resistance is most strong to the backlash against those people in our community. And you know what? I'm a little bit proud of that. I really am. And if you have your straight man talks about gay issues, bingo card ready, you can cross off the bit where I tell you that I'm not gay because I'm not. And I do need to, you know, the last thing anybody needs is me straight-splaining all of this. But nevertheless, I I do feel pride in Pride Month. I feel pride in the culture that I have chosen to be part of. And I feel proud in the family that I found. Some of you will know what that means. What makes me proud is the fact that I live in a community that allows you to be proud of who and what you are. It's not, I don't think in geek culture, about labels. We've got them. Of course we've got them. We wear them proudly. But the labels don't matter except as an expression of who you are. And who you are is fine. So, yeah. Sorry, this got a little bit more philosophical than I intended to, but happy Pride Month is what I'm saying. Whether you celebrate or not, because as long as you are being authentically who you are, I'm proud of you. The person that you have decided you are is a bigot, in which case, do better. And on to actual news. Stuff has been happening in the world of popular culture. And since we are talking about Pride, we will look back to one of the gayest films that's ever been made. I am, of course, talking about Top Gun. Seriously, did you watch the original Top Gun? If you don't think that's a gay movie, you did not see the volleyball scene. That's all I'm saying. That many muscles and that much baby oil. Uh-uh. The sequel, Top Gun Maverick, was long awaited and is perhaps a little bit less, how shall we put this, flamboyant. But it is a cracking movie. I mean, yes, of course, it's a huge advertising poster for the US military. So was the original. They're both still great. Honestly, I love them both. I never had the urge to join the Air Force. Well, actually, I did slightly have the urge to join the Air Force, but I resisted it when I realised I'd have to cut my hair and do what people said. So, you know, it was never going to work on me. And I don't think, honestly, I don't, I don't think anybody who wouldn't have been attracted to the military in any case ever joined the Army or the Navy or the Air Force because they saw Top Gun. But just like the Fast and Furious series, Top Gun is one of those movies that qualifies as a geek movie, even though it does not, on the face of it, tick any of the geek boxes. It's not about science fiction. It's not fantasy. It does, without question, reinforce mainstream views, which is not a geeky thing to do. But it's still geeky because you can't put that many planes into a film and not have it be geeky. All the plane geeks, of whom I am proudly one, were very definitely watching Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick for the astonishing aerial sequences. Uh, and you know what? I mean, Top Gun, the original Top Gun, hasn't even got a plot to speak of. Uh, it's still great. So anyway, why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because Top Gun Maverick has been out for a year now 
Even I have seen it twice, and I don't go to the cinema anymore. And it's just broken another record. It is the gift that keeps on giving. In this case, Top Gun Maverick has now exceeded the $1 million mark at the Japanese box office. Which is interesting to me, because Japan really doesn't have the military hoorah culture that the Americans have and that the British have to a slightly lesser extent. Um, Japan is officially a pacifist nation. They don't have an army, a navy or an air force. They have combined self-defense forces. And the term self-defense is expressly included there. You know, not in the way that what we used to call the Ministry of War, we now call the Ministry of Defense because it sounds slightly less hostile, but because the Japanese have said, we are not doing war anymore. Now, that is not a culture in which you would expect a movie like Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick to succeed. And apparently, it does. I think it's got something to do with the astonishing charisma of Tom Cruise. I can't see how it is anything else. Uh, Cruise, again, a mainstream star who definitely counts as genre and who most of us seem to like in spite of the fact that he appears to be more than a bit odd. Although, again, I suppose if we're talking about being proud of who we are, Cruise definitely manages that. So, hoorah, I guess. Now, obviously, in other news, the WGA strike means there isn't a lot of other news in the area of at least American-made film and television. They're just not doing it right now. But Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is already finished, which means that is coming up and nothing can stop it. So that makes us happy. More than that, a third film in that franchise is expected in March next year, 2024, uh, called Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse. Now, my guess is that that might well be delayed, although it is the writers who are on strike. And if they're planning to release it in March 2024, then it is very much written. So all that is remaining is the animation and the animators are not on strike. So who knows? But what happens beyond that? Because people are at Sony looking beyond March 2024 at what they can do with the bits of the Spider-Verse that they very definitely own and have control of. Remember, Marvel only gets to put Spider-Man on screen because Sony license it back to them. Sony retains the screen rights to Spider-Man and the Spider-Man characters. That's why they could do Venom and all that kind of stuff. So what else is coming? Well, Sony's Marvel Spidey-verse universe thing is beginning to try and take some shape. Um, a couple of things have shaken it up a little bit. Hello, Morbius. We're looking at you. Mm, you were terrible, weren't you? Mm, you were. Uh, but other stuff is very much in the pipeline. We've had two Venom movies already, and although I did not personally care for them, uh, they were successful. I know at least one person who is now an avid comics reader as a result of seeing the first Venom movie. So, yeah, shows me what I know. Um, Venom 3 is confirmed uh, and set to come out along with um, a Silk and a Spider-Man Noir TV show. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Silk, um, she is a Korean-American who was bitten by the same spider that bit Peter Parker. Uh, Spider-Man Noir, if you saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, uh, you will know who Spider-Noir is. And if you didn't see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, you should correct that error. There you go. Go and do it now. It's on Netflix, I think. Go do it. Go. Go. Uh, they've also got uh, Craven the Hunter, Madame Web uh, and El Muerto uh, all ready uh, to go, as far as I can see. So those pro and, and suddenly, you know, if we ignore Morbius and we are ignoring Morbius, I'm not even sure why he's a Spider-Man villain. But anyway, ignoring Morbius, there's a lot going on there. And, you know, with TV shows and movies, uh, they could be a serious contender to take in quite a lot of attention away from Marvel Studios on their own turf. And um, I'm admiring the conies of that, frankly. And apparently even more is on the way. According to Variety, 
Um, there could be a live-action Miles Morales and a live-action Spider-Woman. Um, Amy Pascal said to Variety, uh, it's all happening. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means, but um, Avi Arad, uh, who, again, is one of the producers of all of this, uh, said they will all be here sooner than you expect. I cannot tell you yet, but it's coming. So, well, that's exciting. And they're also working on uh, Spider-Man 4 as a movie, but that is caught up in the WGA strike. Um, they say, however, they are going to make another movie. Uh, kind of a no-brainer, as far as Amy Pascal is concerned. Uh, the question then is, well, which Spider-Woman? Are we talking Gwen Stacy, the, the character that I know as Spider-Gwen and Ghost Spider? But who? in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, clearly names herself a Spider-Woman. Are we going with her? Or are we going with Jessica Drew, the Spider-Woman who is Spider-Woman in the comics? Why not both? Both is good. We could do both. So, a lot is coming, I think, is what we're saying here. We can expect a lot of spidery goodness in our future. And I, for one, am here for it. Sony, finally, seems to be doing a really, really good job with all of this. I was unsure about the Andrew Garfield movies. I thought there was a lot to love in them, but I didn't think they really hit the mark. And that is not a ding on Andrew Garfield, who I thought made a great Spider-Man. And I've got to be honest, I'm not actually a huge fan of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done with Tom Holland's Peter Parker. He's great. He moves like Spider-Man should. Uh, his dance training clearly comes through. That's that's wonderful stuff. And his personality is fantastic for it. And at least at the beginning, he came across as an authentically authentic teenager uh, in the way that, let's say, Tobey Maguire never did. Maybe not so much anymore, but then you can't really fight the aging process, can you? Uh, but they certainly, they can't set the next Spider-Man movie with him in high school. That's beginning to look weird and, not to put too fine a point on it, a bit creepy. But still, he's a great Spider-Man, but what they, the writing that they did for him in the MCU, I don't think did the character justice, really. So I'm hoping that whatever Sony do, they do something cool. Now, I, I don't think they're going to use Tom Holland as Peter Parker. They could. I'm pretty sure they could. Legally, I'm pretty sure they could. I don't think they will. I think they'll want to differentiate which I think is maybe why they'll go down the Miles Morales route and just say, look, different Spider-Man, it's fine. And again, that's great, really. That's what Miles is for, to make Spider-Man young and cool again. So I'm going to be watching this with real, real interest because very few companies have stood up to the mouse and won in quite the way that Sony have over Spider-Man. And I am not going to pretend that Sony is a plucky little underdog here. I mean, everyone's smaller than Disney, but, you know, Sony can handle itself. But so many other companies have just been steamrolled by Disney, and Disney have just taken what they wanted. Hello, Fox. Suddenly, you still own the X-Men, but Disney owns you. That didn't happen to Sony. So, good on I, I... I think it's actually quite healthy to have a bit of competition between studios for what is effectively the same turf. It should persuade everyone to up their game. And perhaps maybe on this occasion, the rising tide really will lift all boats. And if that has a knock on effect and makes the DC side of things improve, although, again, with James Gunn show running over there now, some confidence in that department anyway, but if it all does drive higher quality and better stuff, then that's got to be positive, hasn't it? OK, that's it for the weird, rambly, opinionated news segment. Let's roll into something a little bit more objective. It's time to talk about... I love that jingle an absurd amount. Seriously, truly, it is my favourite ever Levi's commercial. And I think I've said this before, 
I also actually like the original version by Babylon Zoo before it had all the silliness done to it. So, you know, there's that. Anyway, space. Something big has been happening in space. And we haven't mentioned it, and it's time we did. This is not actually news now. This is slightly out of date. But, JUICE! JUICE has launched! Well on its way to the Jovian system now. And we haven't mentioned it, in spite of the fact that it launched weeks ago. So, what am I talking about? Am I just thirsty? Or is there something important going on? Well, yeah, there is something important going on. JUICE. It's one of those acronyms that gets used in space that only works because you really, really, really force it to fit. Uh, JUICE is the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Now, what is that? Well, that's an interplanetary spacecraft, which is to say it's going from this planet to the planet Jupiter, or at least the Jovian system. It was launched by the European Space Agency on the 14th of April 2023 from the uh, Guiana Space Centre in French Guiana by the European Space Agency. Um, it is planned to study Ganymede, Callisto and Europa, three of Jupiter's Galilean moons and three of Jupiter's icy moons. They are believed to have significant bodies of liquid water beneath their icy surfaces, which means they are potentially habitable environments. Now, although the spacecraft was launched back on the 14th of April, it is expected to reach Jupiter in July 2031. Yep, it's going to take eight years to get there. That is because we are launching things with chemical propulsion, and that has limits. One of those limits is the maximum speed that can be achieved. And so in order to get to Jupiter at all, in order to get it into that kind of orbit, it will need four gravity assists. They're going to use other heavenly bodies to slingshot the craft and gain a, a boost from the gravity of that planetary body. You're going to need to do that four times, which is why it's going to take eight years. So in December the 20, 2034, the spacecraft will enter orbit around Ganymede to begin its first close-up science mission. Now, that's all very well and good, but what actually is it going to find? Well, the mission started as a rejig of a previous mission proposal, the Jupiter Ganymede Orbiter proposal, which would have been ESA's con contribution to the cancelled Europa-Jupiter system mission. Um, it became a candidate for the first L-class mission of the ESA Cosmic Vision program, and its selection as a thing that we're actually going to try and do was announced back in 2012. Uh, in April 2012, in fact, JUICE was recommended over the proposed Advanced Telescope of High-Energy Astrophysics, the Athena X-ray Telescope and Gravitational Wave Observatory. Because there's always a trade-off with these things. The money for scientific research is always limited. If one proposed project gets funded, that means the money isn't there to fund something else. There is always, always a cost. So... It's on its way now. Um, it's going to be doing a flyby of um, the Earth-Moon system in August next year, 2024. It's going to do a flyby of Venus in 2025 and a second flyby of Earth in September 2026. And then a third and final flyby of Earth in January 2029. Each one of those passes is supposed to give the craft more speed without using fuel. Actually, as I say, using the gravity of these planetary bodies to slingshot the spacecraft to a higher velocity so that eventually it will enter the Jovian orbit. And from there, obviously, it will then put itself in orbit around the various icy moons. It'll start with um, a flyby of Ganymede and then enter the orbit of Ganymede uh, around about December 2034, uh, first orbiting at around... 5,000 kilometers, and then in 2035, JUICE will enter a circular orbit 500 kilometers above the surface of Ganymede. That's incredibly close. It will then study Ganymede's composition and magnetosphere, along with, you know, what ESA rather blithely refers to as other things. 
it will then will also have done some flybys of uh, Europa and Io, and it will eventually, when it runs out of propellant, deorbit um, from Ganymede, uh, which is a euphemism for crash into Ganymede uh, around about the end of 2035. Now, the science objectives here are quite ambitious. Uh, it's going to evaluate uh, Ganymede and its potential to support life. Uh, investigations for Europe, Europa and Callisto will complete a comparative picture of these Galilean moons. And the three moons are thought to have liquid water oceans. Um, Juice is going to look into that and see whether that is actually true. So the main science objectives for Ganymede and to a lesser extent the uh, objectives for Callisto are as follows. To characterise the ocean layers and detect, and detect uh, putative subsurface water reservoirs. That is to say, are there, are there lakes under there? Uh, topographical, geological and compositional mapping of the surface. The study of the physical properties of the icy crust itself. Uh, the characterization of the internal mass distribution dynamics and evolution of the interiors of these moons. Investigation of any atmosphere that may or may not exist around these planets. Uh, if there is such atmosphere, there's not going to be a lot of it. Uh, more than our dear moon, perhaps, but not a lot. Uh, and also to study uh, Ganymede's intrinsic magnetic field and how that interacts with the Jovian magnetosphere. For Europa, the focus is going to be on the chemistry essential to life, including looking for organic molecules and also looking at understanding the formation of surface features and the, comp the composition of all the stuff that's on there that isn't water ice. In addition to all of that, Juice will be providing the first subsurface sounding of the moon of Europa, including the first determination of the minimal thickness of the icy crust uh, and what it's volcanically active regions are doing uh, and as I said uh, more more distant result uh, observations are also going to be carried out um, for the moon of Io which is also volcanically active this is all fascinating stuff if there is life anywhere in this solar system that isn't based on earth my money is on it being on one of the icy moons of Jupiter. I really do think that if there's life out there, that's where it is. And I don't think, we, you know, we are not talking about little green men. We are not talking about Marvin the Martian. I would that we were. We are probably talking about single-celled life forms, probably. But the idea that life can be shown to have evolved beyond Earth would tell us something. If it's happened twice in one solar system, that would make life incredibly likely. And if life is likely, then intelligent life logically must also have happened elsewhere. I'd like to be able to have seen some demonstration of that in my lifetime. I think if we're going to get that in my lifetime, I think the Jovian moons are the place that we're going to get it from. But that's not the only really cool thing about juice. JUICE was launched from French Guiana aboard an Ariane 5 rocket. Now, Ariane 5 has never been the most powerful rocket that we've ever had. It does not come close to the Saturn V, and it certainly is nowhere near as powerful as the Starship Super Heavy stack that SpaceX have unsuccessfully thus far tried to put into orbit. They have successfully launched it, though, so it counts. Um, Ariane 5, not nearly that powerful, but almost. Ariane 5 is a ridiculously powerful rocket. And Juice was, I think, its penultimate launch. The Ariane 5 is going to be decommissioned by the European Space Agency, and they're not going to build anymore. Obviously, there are lots of reasons for this. It's fairly old tech now, and it is disposable technology. You build an Ariane 5, you launch an Ariane 5, you throw the Ariane 5 away. This is quite an expensive way to do things, but equally, it works. And Ariane 5 is going to be replaced with the somewhat unimaginatively titled Ariane 6. I know. 
To be fair, it's French, so it's the Ariane 6, which, I don't know, is it just me or does everything sound slightly cooler in French? Anyway, um, the Ariane 6 is just around the corner and I am really looking forward to seeing what Ariane 6 is going to be capable of. Because Ariane 5 may not be the most powerful rocket humanity has ever launched, but it is without question the most capable. The James Webb Space Telescope would not be anywhere near as effective as it is had it not been inserted into orbit with such precision by an Ariane 5 rocket. I note with interest that NASA did not ask SpaceX to launch the James Webb Space Telescope, nor did they do it themselves. NASA has rockets. They didn't use them. They came to the Europeans. That, my friends, is how good Ariane 5 has been. Ariane 6? Ariane 6 promises to be better. Now, it might be like those um, Marks and Spencer's ready meals that you get, um, where it says, new and improved recipe on the box, and they always suck. Seriously, some of the scariest words known to the English language are new and improved when printed on a Marks and Spencer's ready meal. It may be that. It might be that they take the incredibly brilliant Ariane 5, put on some upgrades and discover that the Ariane 6 is a total dog. Of course, if that happens, they can always go back to building Ariane 5s. But if the Ariane 6 is as much of an improvement on the 5 as the 5 was an improvement on the 4, and I've been following Ariane for most of my life, and... The Ariane 5 is a huge upgrade on the Ariane 4. If the Ariane 6 is anything like that much of an upgrade, it's going to be impressive indeed. So, we'll be keeping a weather eye on the JUICE mission as it does innumerable flybys of various uh, solar system bodies. Uh, we're probably not going to mention it very much on the show until 2035. We may not be around in 2035. I'll be sick. Oh, God, I'll be 60. <sighs> okay. Um, but, having said all of that, we will keep an eye on it. Because, it, you know, it's not just along for the ride on this massively long, convoluted track it's taking to get to Jupiter. It will be doing some science on the way. If it pulls up anything useful, we'll let you know. We'll also, of course, keep you advised with um, howls of delight and enthusiasm, probably, uh, as we see the development of the Ariane 6. Because um, ah, it's going to be cool. That's going to be really cool. And speaking of things that are cool in space, uh, we will just note that the Chinese have just put their first civilian into space aboard one of their Long March rockets. Uh, more than that, I cannot tell you because they do not tell you much, the Chinese, about their space program. And in the context of China... How civilian is a civilian that's been adopted into the space program anyway? Difficult to know. Um, they do things very differently there, I think is all we can say. But still, it is another milestone in space. And just another bit of illustration that space is not just about America. Space is about many countries. And it's worth bearing that in mind too. And with that internationalist bombshell still ringing in our ears we'll leave space just there and we will very very quickly just do some comics recommendations for you uh, as so often happens there was a bank holiday this week which means that the delivery was late which means i have not had chance to read very many of the comics that came in with the delivery this week, I barely had time to get them on the shelves at the shop, if I'm honest. But there is still some good stuff to talk about. Uh, we have to mention, given that it is June the 1st, we have to mention DC Pride 2023. Uh, and DC does a really good job with this, I have to say. There has been an issue in comics over these many years where there was not a huge amount of LGBTQIA plus representation, in spite of the fact that quite a lot of people who were heavily involved in the making of comics 
were themselves people who identified as LGBTQIA+. That has changed. There are now lots of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, intersex and asexual individuals and many other identities as well within the universes of the comics that exist. And DC Pride and to a a, a lesser extent, I have to say Marvel, sorry, but to a lesser extent, Marvel Voices do a good job every year of bringing those characters together into stories that don't feel entirely forced, at least, and putting a bit of representation overtly up on the racks. And this year's DC Pride is out, well, yesterday, actually. Uh, so it's out now. And it's it's good. Now, it's, it's easy to be cynical about books like this. Um, because, you know, they're not that difficult to label as virtue signalling, bandwagon jumping, box ticking exercises. And in the past, they have been. Some of them have been. Uh, This one, I think, is not. It is full of short but enjoyable stories in which characters who are identified as LGBTQIA+, within the DC universe, are brought to the fore, and their identity is allowed to shine. And I think that's a good thing. I would be cynical about it, were it not for the fact that DC actually talks the talk and walks the walk all year round. This is not just something they do in June. Uh, Superman's son... John Kent, who is also Superman. But, look, I'm old, there's only one Superman as far as I am concerned, and that is Clark Kent. John Kent might call himself Superman, and I have no problem with him doing that, but he'll never be Superman to me. Let's just be very clear about that. Uh, But John Kent, the son of Superman, also known as Superman, amongst the young people at least, uh, he's bi. As is Tim Drake. Uh, Robin, or one of them, one of the many Robins. I'm not explaining Robin right now. Uh, But Tim Drake came out as gay, uh, or the character came out as gay, uh, fairly recently, in a way that I really like. It seemed real. You know, I've known people who've come out. Actually, Tim's not gay, he's bisexual. But um, I've known people who've come out at roughly the age that Tim is now and who have realised that about themselves, or at least accepted that, about themselves at about the age that Tim is now. So that felt real to me. There was there were some moans at the time about, oh God, they're turning a character gay. And actually, no, I think it was just a natural part of, of Tim's character development. Anyway, DC Pride 2023, out now. Uh, really enjoyed it. Actually, a really good book to read if you want to be introduced to a bunch of characters. What's really important, I think, for books like this, and it's, a, it's, it's something that this book achieves, The stories are enjoyable, even if you don't care about the LGBTQIA plus thing. If you regard that as completely incidental, the stories are still good. They are telling good stories, which, again, for me, makes it more than a mere box ticking exercise. So there's that. And finally, on to the Geek Community Notice Board. As you know, there is no Pride event in Harrogate this month. There will be one in August. Uh, More about that when I know more is a comic convention about which I know almost nothing happening at the showground this weekend. Uh, If you are minded to go and check that out, uh, Google it. The information's online. Uh, And as ever, there is a whole bunch of stuff happening at Geek Retreat and at The Secret Lair. I would point you at the social medias of both of those organisations to check out exactly what's going on there and when. I do not have time in the very few seconds I have left to detail all of that. Big shout out to to my friends at the Geek Book Quiz. There is no Geek Book Quiz this week. Okay, moving on. We are out of time, my friends. It is time to wrap things up. We'll be back next week, hopefully a little bit more coherent. We have been a bit rushed this week, as ever. We will be bringing you the whole world of geek next week. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay safe and stay geeky. We will see you. You soon. So until then, 
just keep smiling. Bye!